There is a man who calls himself the friendly atheist. Maybe you've heard of him. He's a, uh, a popular blogger and he writes articles and speaks on some, some news shows. His name is Himant Meta. He's an atheist and we all need friendlier people. So it's a good thing he's a friendly atheist. But he was asked, what would it take for you to believe in God? And he responds along the lines of the, the other famous atheist you may have heard of, Bertrand Russell, who said when he arrived in, in heaven and stood before God, what would he say to God? And Russell said he would respond, Sir, why did you not give me more evidence? Well, the friendly atheist responds to the question, what would it take for you to believe in God? He responds something to the effect of, well, I suppose it would take some sort of miracle for me to see with my own eyes something that could not be explained by any sort of natural causes. He supposes that would convince him of the reality of God. Well, is that all that's needed? I, I hope that it, perhaps it would convince him, but I'm not necessarily convinced that it would convince him of the reality of God? Or what would it take to convince you in your doubts, in your questionings? What is it that gives you enough assurance to believe not only that God exists, because we, we claim a lot more than that, right? We, we claim a lot more specific, specificity than just the fact that God exists. What about your doubts that Jesus is the Son of God? That Jesus is the way of salvation? that he's the only way of salvation, that he is who he says he is. What, will it, what would it take for you to believe that without any doubts whatsoever, to have no lingering questions in your mind? Well, as we come to our text this morning, Jesus gives evidence to the Jews who are accusing him. They're saying he's making himself equal with God. Not only is he doing things on the Sabbath that he shouldn't do, He's also claiming a unique relationship to God the Father. And sure enough, Jesus answers their accusations and says, Yes, I am equal with the Father. I work on the Sabbath because God himself works on the Sabbath. He professes that he does have the authority to do those things. But not only that, he goes a step further and says, Not only do I have the authority to heal someone on the Sabbath, I have the very authority to give life and to judge, not only now, but on that day. On that day that is coming, Jesus claims he has the authority over life and judgment. And then in condescension to the Jews in our passage for today, Jesus continues his argument. He's, he's still arguing. He's still giving a defense of who he is. But now he goes a step further in condescending to their, their questions, he gives them a list of witnesses. I don't just testify about myself. Here are some witnesses for you who profess and bear witness to who I am. But not only does he do that, he then goes on to accuse them. He turns the tables on them. He gives them a list of witnesses, and then he accuses them by ultimately saying, evidence is not what you need to believe. A lack of evidence is not why you won't believe. It has something to do with you. 
with your very heart. Because of the evidence that Jesus lays out, the Jewish leaders are without excuse for their unbelief. And the same goes for all humans. The same goes for Hemet. same goes for Bertrand Russell. The same goes for everyone in the world. Because of the evidence God has laid out and because of the evidence that has been laid out for us in the Holy Scriptures, we are without excuse for our unbelief. Well, I want you to see this from our Scripture in two parts. I've already mentioned them to you. In the first part of this passage, verses 30 through 39, we see the witnesses that are laid out. And then in verses 40 through 47, we see Jesus' accusations against the Jewish leaders. We We could lay it out as part one, verses 30 through 39, are reasons to believe Jesus is who he says he is, these witnesses. And then we could view verses 40 through 47 as obstacles, not legitimate obstacles, but reasons why the Jewish leaders would not believe upon Jesus. Let's consider first then these witnesses that Jesus gives as evidence to himself. Having admitted that he is not just his own witness, he says, sure, okay, you need more witnesses, I'll give you more witnesses. He first points to the Father himself as a witness to him. We see this implicitly in verse 32. There is another, that that word speaks to another of like kind. There is another who bears witness about me, and his testimony is true. Take this to refer to the Father, and then as we circle back around to the, towards the end of the passage, or really to the middle of the passage, Verse 37, it's more explicitly, the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. First witness is the Father. And really we could see these other witnesses as kind of subpoints under this main witness, the Father, because they all come from him. He sends these witnesses. He gives Jesus his, Jesus works to do. He sends others to witness about him. So we see the Father who bears witness about him. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. He says, the Father is a witness on my behalf, pointing out the truth of what I am saying to you. But you can't hear him. You don't know him. You have never heard his voice. You you like to say that you are ones who know God more than anyone else, and yet you have never heard his voice. His word is not abiding in you. You've never seen his form. Jesus is speaking this as one who has been one with the Father from all eternity. He has seen the form of the Father. He has heard the voice of the Father. He is one with the Father. The irony, of course, is that the Jewish leaders are seeing the very form of God in human flesh before them, hearing his very voice. He is speaking to them his word, and yet they cannot acknowledge him. They cannot recognize God when he stands right before them. So they are without excuse. They refuse to believe, even though the Father gives witness to him. Well, there's also John the Baptist who is a witness to Jesus. He came saying, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There is one who is coming who is greater than I am. I'm not even fit to, to, 
undo the lace of his sandal. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit of God. And Jesus even acknowledges that for a time you, you enjoyed the light that he brought to you. You enjoyed his preaching, his teaching, where he was coming from. But ultimately you would not receive his witness to me. And I do love how Jesus, in his compassion, even these ones who are rejecting him, who are seeking to persecute and kill him, he says, I'm telling you these things. I, I don't need any human witness. But I'm telling you these things so that you might be saved. Compassion, even for those who are seeking to, to kill him, to murder him. But there is a testimony that is even greater than John. Verse 36, the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, they bear witness to me. Another witness, these works, this miracle that he just performed on the man who had been lame for 38 years. Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And he does so. And yet they refuse to believe. We'll come to another miracle where Jesus calls Lazarus forth from the grave, and they still don't believe. He has many witnesses in the Father, in John the Baptist, in his works. And yet they refuse to believe. Will, will a miracle be enough to convince someone of the truth of what Jesus Christ says? Well, he not only has these witnesses, he also has the scriptures themselves, which bear witness to the truth of who Jesus is. Verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. This term bearing witness is found throughout this passage. Jesus is laying out before them. Here's the proof that you need. Here are the witnesses. The Father is a witness. John the Baptist, my works, even the scriptures which you are steeped in, which you love, which you treasure beyond everything else. These things are my witness. They speak of me. Well, Jesus is laying forth witnesses, evidence, for reasons why they should believe who he says he is. But this is written not just for them. This is written ultimately for everyone who would read. This is written for us, brothers and sisters, that our faith might be built up, that we might be strengthened in our faith because of these witnesses who also support the claims of Jesus Christ himself, that he is the author of life and death, that he is the one who stands in judgment over all who refuse to receive him. Do you ever doubt? Do you ever waver in your faith? If you, if you never have a lingering question, then I'll admit you're better than I am. There are moments when I, when I struggle with this fight of faith that you wonder, could it really be true? All these various options, could, it, could this really be true? Well, let these, these witnesses firm up your faith. Let these witnesses firm up your faith. Not only what Jesus has said, but what others, these various witnesses have said about him. Think about the witnesses we have, brothers and sisters. It, Christianity in our faith is not like some of the atheists like to claim it is. Or even your friends down the street. It's not just a blind leap in the dark, throwing out all your questions and, and thoughts, negative thoughts about it, and just 
just jumping blindly into faith. We have good reasons to believe what we believe. We have good reasons to believe that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. What witnesses do we have? Well, we have this, these witnesses here, but think what else we have. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We have Paul and Peter and James and Jude. Is that all we have? Do we have more witnesses? We have Moses. We have Joshua. We have David. We have Solomon. We have the authors of the Old Testament scriptures. We have the major prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel. We have the 12 minor prophets. Do you see all the witnesses that we have? These various witnesses over a thousand years separated all are pointing to Jesus Christ that he is who he says he is. Is that evidence? Is that good reason to believe? We have good reason to believe. What about just the idea that, the, that God exists? Do we have any reason to believe that? Well, look around, brothers and sisters, at his wonderful creation. Look at the intricate design with which he created you. How could we not believe with all the evidence that he's given us? Let this firm up your faith that we do have good reason to believe that Jesus has spoken it and that a great cloud of witnesses has spoken it as well. This also, Jesus' actions here, not only firm up our faith, but they inform us in how we can also speak to others. It, last week, I hope I didn't give the impression to you that apologetics were of no value. Ultimately, we need something else, right? Ultimately, we need the Holy Spirit of God to reach in and change our heart. And yet there is a role of, for apologetics, that is, giving a defense of the faith, right? Jesus is demonstrating that for us here. He's giving reasons why they should believe, reasons why they're wrong to not believe in him. And so we can, we can offer reasons. We can patiently answer questions that people have about the faith, telling them why we believe what we believe, giving an account for the hope that lives within us. There are good reasons to believe, and we can tell those to others as well. Knowing all along that these are tools to be used, these are means by which God might work, but ultimately he's got to reach in and change someone's heart. Well, we've seen the witnesses. Now I'll spend the rest of our time on some of these obstacles in verses 40 through 47. See, the problem is not evidence. Here are the witnesses. The problem is something else. He changes from giving them evidence to giving them accusations. He tells them the real, real reasons why they are not believing in him, why they are not trusting in him. We see this in verses 40 through 47. I'll just point out three of these two that I think are, are plain and from the Scripture. First is the first obstacle to faith in Christ for the Jewish leaders, and I think for us as well, is reading the Scriptures wrongly. Approaching the Scriptures wrongly. We see this in that the Scriptures were bearing witness to him, but we also saw what else Jesus said in verse 39. You search the Scriptures... Because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You see, they were reading scripture in a, in a wrong way, in a faulty way. They prized it. They, they exalted it. They studied it. They researched it. They memorized it. Right? 
They valued it above perhaps anything else. And yet they were using Scripture unscripturally. They were using it wrongly. They were abusing Scripture in the way that they were reading it. And this calls them to not go to Jesus to have life. They thought they had life in the Scriptures. Considering this point made me think of uh, a book by C.S. Lewis. He's the, the author of The Chronicles of Narnia. Mere Christianity is, is a, a good apologetics text. Uh, there's also, a, he wrote a few other short fiction works. One of them is called The Screwtape Letters. It can get kind of confusing to read it because he's approaching it as if he were the enemy of God attacking, in other words, demons trying to undermine the faith of Christians. So it's a series of letters written by one higher-up demon to a lower-up demon trying to undermine Christians, trying to, to debilitate their faith or get them to, to doubt God. Well, I considered what it, it may have looked like if we're thinking about how, getting us to read Scripture in a wrong sort of way. If, if you know that there is a reference to that in the Scriptate letters, let me know. I, I wasn't able to find it. But imagine him saying uh, to the, the lower demon trying to undermine faith, it's okay if you let them read the Scriptures. Actually, we want them to read Scriptures. Just help them to read it in a way that doesn't point them to the main point. Help them to read the enemy's book. You see, that's how a demon would refer to the Bible. Help them to read the enemy's book in a way maybe that, that is just for therapeutic value. Right? Something that will give them comfort. Maybe like as a reference book. Whenever you have a problem, just send them to the Bible to get a little snippet here and they'll, they'll be happier in their day. Like chicken soup for the soul. Right? Or maybe have them read it in an inspirational sort of way. Just so that they can be, be motivated to go about their day and their week. They'll be refreshed. They'll be happy throughout the week. Just as long as you don't make it about you-know-who. See, that's how they would refer to, to Jesus. They're, they would be so afraid to even mention His name. Just make sure they miss the main point or have them read it moralistically as basic instructions before leaving earth, as, as ways that can be good citizens and good to other people, as long as you help them avoid the main point. And apparently, the demons succeeded with the Jewish leaders. Because this is how they read the Scripture. Because in it, they thought they had life. And yet, it was an obstacle to real faith in Jesus. Well, brothers and sisters, how do you read the Scriptures? This informs us how we ought to read the scriptures. Is it just kind of a little boost to get you going throughout the day? Do you read it mainly therapeutically or mainly moralistically? How to make your children be good? Well, you just give them Bible verses and then they'll be good. Or are we reading it as that which brings us to the one who gives us life? Now, it's, a subtle, it's a, a subtle distinction here, right? Because the Bible is God's holy word. You cannot know God without the Scriptures. It re he reveals to us in special and specific ways who He is. And yet it is 
completely possible to know the scriptures back and forth and not know God. How do you read the scriptures? And for what reason do you read the scriptures? Do you think in them you have life or do you see the scriptures at that, as that which makes you able to commune with Jesus Christ himself? His word to us. Do you go about your daily private time, uh, devotionals? And do you feel good after you've read because you've really, you've really done good this week? It, it boosts your, your self-worth. It, it boosts your sense of pride about doing something spiritual for the day. Or you've kept it up every day for the new year, your new, new year's resolution. Do you view it as an end in and of itself or do you view it as a means to get more of Jesus? He's the one who gives us life. Let's be careful, brothers and sisters, how we read the scriptures. It's, it's very possible for us to fall back in old patterns, is it not? To read in a moralistic sort of way, to, to view it as our means of attaining a certain righteousness. Well, Jesus shows that pro- evidence is not the problem. He shows them there's something else going on. But he even goes beyond that. It's not just a misunderstanding about how they read Scripture. They weren't just mistaken in how they were reading Scripture. Their wrong reading of Scripture was rooted in other problems that they had. Heart problems. That's the same for us. And so second, I want you to see this obstacle to faith in Jesus. Seeking glory from others. They were seeking glory from one another. Verses 41 through 44. You see his logic there. I do not receive glory from people. This is, this is not what I do. He's, he's making a contrast between him and them. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. Verse 44. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another? And do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. They were seeking glory from one another. How can you believe when you're doing that? You can't, in other words. Now, you would think that Jesus would say, how can you believe when you're seeking your own glory? He doesn't exactly say that, does he? He says, you're seeking glory from one another and not from God. There's a sense then in which it is appropriate for us to seek Approval from God, glory from God, and yet they were seeking not approval or glory from God himself, but from one another. And this led them to not believe. Their rejection of Jesus was ultimately evidence of their own preference for themselves. They wanted to be built up in the eyes of the people around them, particularly their, their religious peers. They wanted to be thought well of. They wanted to be thought of as righteous, as the, the most righteous of all. And this caused them to not be able to come in humble faith to Jesus. See, that's what is required here. Humility. Humility. Not seeking glory from one another, but from God. And that they began seeking their glory from God, their approval from God, that would inevitably drive them to Jesus Christ. And perhaps there are ways that this hinders even our faith as believers too. 
You fall back into the same, same pattern, some, some ruts of wanting to be thought highly of by other religious people, by others in our, our field of expertise. We want to, to be thinking, be thought of concerning our accomplishments as one who has done well. Especially for, for us religious people, we want to be thought of as righteous. These were religious people that Jesus was speaking to. They were the leaders of the religious people. They were Jewish leaders. They were top-rung leaders of the religious movement. And yet they sought glory from others. Well, do you struggle with this, brothers and sisters? Wanting to be thought highly of for your accomplishments, of your, for your own morality or righteousness, for your knowledge, for your insight, for those areas in which you are best. It will hinder your faith. It, it will turn your faith away f- from Christ outside of you back towards yourself. It will move you to look inside yourself rather than to Christ. Consider finally this third obstacle in verses 45 to 47. The Jewish leaders were hoping in the wrong person. How can you believe? He asked the question again in verse 44. How can you believe when you receive glory from another? uh, Sorry, wrong verse. 45 and following. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you do not believe Moses, you will not believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, there he asks the question again, how will you believe my words? How will you believe me if you haven't believed Moses? They were hoping in the wrong person. They were hoping ultimately in Moses. And it's ironic what what Jesus does here. I do not accuse you with the Father. I will not accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. Imagine you are in the courtroom giving a defense for yourself. You did not do the crime and you shouldn't have to suffer the consequences. Your attorney gets up and gets ready to speak to the jury and the judge in your defense and all of a sudden he starts accusing you. What a shock that would be. What are you doing? Why are you accusing me before the jury and judge? You're my defense attorney. This is what Jesus is saying about Moses for the Jewish leaders. In him they had put all of their hope. He would be the intercessor for them on that last day before the Father. Perhaps they thought he would say, see how good they have kept the rules that I wrote up? In Scripture, see how well they have established their own righteousness? All their hope was in Moses as their mediator. Now John has already pointed to Moses as being the one through whom the law has come. Remember that in chapter 1. Through Moses came the law, and through Jesus Christ came grace and truth. So we could also see this as the Jewish leader's hope being ultimately in the law to establish them. All of their hope was in their law and their keeping of it. This is where their hope was. 
This is what would establish them on the last day. This is what, what would set them up before God and would make them right. And yet Jesus says he is your accuser. Why? Because you've got it all wrong. He speaks of me. Moses. In the Old Testament, the first five books, he is not establishing a way of righteousness ultimately before God. He is pointing forward to one who will come and establish righteousness for his people, who will fulfill all righteousness. You hope in Moses, you hope in the law, you hope in your own righteousness, but he was speaking of me. And you don't believe him because you've totally missed it. If you believed him, you would also believe my words. And this was an obstacle to their faith. Moses, though he did intercede for the people of Israel, makes a very poor mediator. One that will, will not save you on the last day. He will accuse all those who, have, who stand up and think they have kept the righteousness of the law. See, Jesus here is pointing himself as the true and better mediator in whom they should hope. Moses was a mediator for a time, but he was mainly a mediator so that he could point to me as the one true mediator, as the Messiah who has come to rescue his people from their sins. In verse 36, Jesus says that his testimony is greater than that of John for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing bear witness about me. Well, there are greater works to come. There are healings to come. There are feedings of thousands of people out of very meager beginnings. There is raising Lazarus from the dead. But the greatest work of all that Jesus came to accomplish that the Father had given him was dying a criminal's death on the cross for sinners and then being gloriously raised from the dead. Not a resuscitation, not like he was almost dead and then he came back to life, but he was dead. His body had ceased living. His heart had stopped beating. He had stopped breathing. And yet he came back to life. This is the work that the Father had sent him to do for you, brothers and sisters paying for your sins because you did not live up to the law, because you could never live up to the law. Even if you had millions of years to try, you would fail for those millions of years. And Jesus accomplished it all in his short lifespan. For you. It's one thing to acknowledge that with your mind intellectually. right? Those who know the scriptures could assent to that truth. I'm not asking you just to assent to that truth, to say, yes, Jesus died for sinners. I'm asking you to embrace Jesus Christ. Jesus died, not just for sinners, but for me. I am a sinner and Jesus died for me. Do you believe it, brothers and sisters? Embrace Jesus Christ and who he says he is and what he has done for you. They refused to do it, the Jewish leaders, because of something that was in their hearts that... They, they could not get past their own pride. They could not get past these claims that Jesus were making so that they could embrace him and have life. 
brothers and sisters, how much evidence is enough for us to believe? How much more do we need? If we believe this one great claim that Jesus has made about himself being the son sent from the father, why wouldn't we believe all of his other claims that he gives us, all his other promises that he gives us that do bring comfort, that do bring faith, that establish us in the midst of trials and circumstances? If, if we believe that he is the son of God sent from heaven, why wouldn't we believe that he will give us everything that we need to endure with faith in this life? You can believe all the promises of God. And it's only reasonable that you do so if you believe that he is the Son of God. How much evidence is enough? Well, there's another atheist, famous atheist, who answered this question, what would persuade you that there is a God? And I think this answer comes closer to the truth, believe it or not. Richard Dawkins, in answer to that question, said, Well, I used to say it would be very simple. It would be the second coming of Jesus or a great, big, deep, booming bass voice saying, I am God and I created. But I was persuaded that even if there was this booming voice in the second coming in the clouds of glory, the more probable explanation is that it's a hallucination or a conjuring trick by David Copperfield or something, a supernatural explanation for anything is incoherent. It doesn't add up to an explanation for anything. And then he goes on, and when pressed further in the interview, he says, well, I'm starting to think that nothing would, which in a way goes against the grain because I've always paid lip service to the view that a scientist should change his mind when evidence is forthcoming. Nothing would convince Richard Dawkins of the truth of God's existence and the truth that Christ is who he says he is. And brothers and sisters, in our own natural state, that is true of us as well. It's not that we are smarter than Richard Dawkins. It's not that we had a spark of spiritual interest in our own hearts or a spark of knowledge or or that we were leaning a little bit towards God when he reached down and changed our hearts. It's that God, in his grace, saw fit to have mercy on you, a sinner. It all redounds back to his grace to us. Right? Those who were born not of the will of man or the will of the flesh, but of God. He gave us birth. We didn't deserve it any more than Richard Dawkins did. And yet, as Jesus has already said in his defense of himself, he has the authority to give life to whomever he will. So as we close in prayer and as we sing praises to our God, let us, let us stand in awe of his marvelous grace to us. He has saved you, brothers and sisters, by his sheer mercy. And you can believe his promises to you. Let's pray together.